Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, August the 21st, 2023. Some writers, it seems, never quite die. Uh, thinking of Orwell, of course. Uh, he remains as alive today and in some ways as he ever was and will remain alive probably forever. Uh, he even has an adjective, Orwellian, uh, to describe his thought, although like Marx, one wonders whether or Orwell was himself uh, a believer, certainly wasn't Orwellian and whether he really believed in his own ideas. Um, he's as alive today as ever, in fact. Um, next month, I'm a uh, I've got a conversation with Sandra Newman. She has a new novel out, uh, Julia, uh, a retelling of George Orwell's 1984 from the perspective of Julia, the main uh, female character. I've already started reading the book. Um, in many ways, she she's more Orwell than Orwell, at least in terms of her style. And then at the end of this week, um, I've got a conversation with Anna Funder. She has a new book out. She's, of course, the author of Stasiland. I'm really looking forward to this conversation on Friday. Uh, her book is Wifedom, Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life, which is a book about uh, Orwell's uh, wife, not life, um, who has been misunderstood and overlooked, at least, I think, according to Funder. So the women have got hold of Orwell. Uh, the, it's always been a bit of a man's business. Uh, the, the, the most distinguished biographer of, of Orwell is DJ Taylor. 2003, he came out with uh, the definitive biography, at least at the time, Orwell the Life. It was embraced, won all sorts of awards, sold very well. And DJ is back with Orwell, with the new life. And he's joining us from Norwich, uh, DJ David uh, Taylor. Congratulations on the new book. Um, will Orwell ever die? Why, why, why isn't he dead and buried already, David? Well, a lot of people have suggested that he ought to have been. I mean, I can remember when I published the first book that you, the first iteration of Orwell about 20 years ago, there was an, an American academic called Scott Lucas wrote a book saying, you know, let's bury this 50-year-old corpse, had enough of all this and so forth. But... Um, he, people find there is so much in Orwell. I think for people to find that that's one of it. And he, what he, what he had to say. We remember he died se over seventy-three years ago now. But it always has this habit of being peculiarly pertinent to to things that are happening in the contemporary age. So um, uh, the most. Even today, you know, the most the, the number of times I, I opened the Times newspaper here in, in England on Saturday morning and there was another piece uh, by the cultural critic A.N. Wilson saying, you know, how relevant is Animal Farm here in 2023, 78 years almost to the day since Orwell wrote it. So it's it's a it's a, it's a Orwell's a kind of brand tub, I suppose, of intellectual thought into which repeated dips tend to haul up anything but brand. David, of course, Orwell's. Perhaps his, his most brilliant invention was Big Brother from 1984. You thought you were finished with uh, Orwell, uh, at least according to one of the reviews. But I wonder whether Orwell for you has become a kind of Big Brother, someone you can't liberate yourself from, someone who's been watching you through your life. Would you like him dead? 
Uh, no, because I find infinite satisfaction and I suppose consolation in his works. And the and the curious thing from my point of view, I suppose, is that I mean, I don't know what it's like in the States, but in here in the UK, nearly everybody has to read Animal Farm in 1984 at school, at school, you know, at set text and then be examined on them. And so the advantage of that is that if you do an oil event and that you're, 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 you're not starting from scratch, you can ask the members of the audience to raise their hands if they read 1984 and three quarters of them will. But I came, curiously, I came at it from a kind of slantendicular angle. The first book of his I read when I was a boy of about 12 or 13 was A Clergyman's Daughter, his second novel, which I think, you know, even Orwell fanatics would probably say wasn't his best novel. I mean, it's about this, uh, it's about this woman living in her father, her clerical father's rectory on the Suffolk coast in the 1930s. Uh, not at all a, a milieu of which I had any knowledge. And yet at the age of 12 or 13, that book and its prose style spoke to me in a way that nothing I'd previously read in my life had. And I was hooked from then on uh, and then went on to discover all, all the other wonderful things he'd written. So um, people, people find different things from him and come at him from different angles. I know I certainly did. And somebody asked me recently uh, if I came across a complete neophyte, someone who had no, no sort of knowledge of all and wanted to know a good place to start. Which book would I recommend? And I said, well, actually, I wouldn't recommend one of the novels or you know, the non-fiction books like The Road to Wigan Pier, I'd say take a selection, a wide selection of Orwell's essays and start there because then you'll get an idea of the absolute kind of variety uh, and range of, and, uh, of his mind and his interests. So you thought you were finished with Orwell, um, but he wasn't finished with you. You wrote this book in 2003, Orwell, The Life, which is a conventional biography. What's different about this new book? What have you added uh, what, what is new about uh, the new life of Orwell, this new biography? OK, well, I, um, I would say there are probably three, three reasons for writing it, is, which is one, um, a, a very large amount of new material became available um, a few years ago. I was particularly lucky to be put in the way of two very large letter collections of letters that he'd written to women he'd known in Suffolk in the 1930s. And uh, they weren't just interesting in terms of his relationship with the women, but all kinds of other things. I mean, a lot of his early life is fairly obscure. We barely know what he was doing at certain times or who he was doing it with. And um, just, just some sort of more forensic information about where he was and what he was reading and what he thought about things. And there were, there were lots of other uh, sort of bits of new material as well, but those were the principal finds. The second reason is that, um, when I wrote the first book, there were still a large number of people around on the planet who knew him and remembered him. You know, elderly literary gentlemen who'd written memoirs and could recall having hobnobbed with him in the 1940s. The problem now here in 2023, 73 years after his death, is that the number of Orwell survivors has dwindled, um, <clears throat> has dwindled, to, well, to a handful. I sat down with Richard Blair, Orwell's adopted son, who was very helpful uh, to me on this book, and in fact um, purchased those two collection of letters and donated them to the Orwell archive in a wonderful philanthropic gesture. And I sat down with Richard not long ago, and we calculated between us that there were seven people left in the world who knew Orwell. Uh, so that's of whom he is the youngest, and he's uh, he's 80, so nearly 80. So um, 
you know, given that dwindling band of survivors, that this is almost the last time, I suppose, really, that a conventional biographer is going to be able to sit down and talk to these people. The third reason, of course, is that a biography, a biography is necessarily a snapshot. It's an individual sensibility coming up against another individual sensibility at a particular point in time using critical interpretive tools that are available. And it occurred to me that in that 20 years since the last book, there were, there were other ways of looking at, at, at oil, some of them which might be fascinating. Uh, I mean, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement is a perfectly uh, respectable prism through which to examine him. Uh, he, you know, his great-grandfather was a slave owner in Jamaica. Uh, <laughs> and sort of what, what affected that? Have on his life and consciousness. In fact, I had an extraordinary experience a couple of weeks ago at a literary event I was doing when a Jamaican man came up who said that his name was Blair and he could trace his ancestry oh back. Oh, my God. I know, uh, because when the, when the slaves were liberated uh, in the early part of the 19th century, they tend to take the names of the proprietors of the plantation. So here was someone who had taken his name from Orwell's great-great-grandfather. Remarkable man, remarkable story. One of the most divisive and interesting things about Orwell is he's been seized, seized by both the left and the right. Um, did you have you changed your mind on his politics uh, between these two books? Are your conclusions in the new life different from the life in terms of whether Orwell was a man of the left or of the right? I think I, I never I never ever thought that he was a man of the right. Um, what I have increasingly come to believe that uh, that his that the if you like that the kind of tension in his work and his outlook is produced by a conflict between his radical left wing political opinions and the intense conservatism that he brought to most other aspects of his life. In fact. Um, uh, one of the marvellous uh, biographical tools that I was able to work with, which wasn't available to anybody in 2003, was the uh, the six letters of Eileen's to her friend Nora Miles that punctuate her marriage to Orwell between 1936 and 1945. And there's a wonderful one that describes Orwell at work on his radical pamphlet, um, <clears throat> Social, The Lion and the Unicorn, Socialism and the English Genius, published in 1941, written during the early months of the war. Uh, and in terms of the political climate of the early 1940s, this is a radical document. I mean, it more or less insists that what Britain needs is a, is a socialist revolution and that the means for obtaining this revolution is the newly founded Home Guard, you know, the local defence force that Britain had in the early part of the war. And Orwell seemed actually to believe at this point that this was the makings of a revolutionary army that could more or less seize control. Um, and Eileen, who was watching the, uh, the creation of this manuscript, remarked to her friend that the actual, the gravamen of the book, that what it was, was uh, how to be a socialist wild Tory. And I think that's a very, very shrewd comment on Orwell, because some of his closest friends were people who would have been regarded as political opponents, people like the novelist Anthony Pohl, say, or the journalist Malcolm Muggeridge. And, but what drew them closer together was their shared upbringing and this idea, this, this, um, uh, this, this kind of fundamental origin in older England, a kind of imperial England, of one of sort of paternalism and um, civic duty and so forth. And I think he had, he had a lot more in common with many of his friends on the right than he did with certain of his friends on the left. You're involved with, uh, David, you're involved with the Orwell Foundation and the quote, the, the, sub, the, the, the subtitle of the foundation is from, from Orwell. What I have most wanted to do is make political writing into an art, which he certainly did.
did. I guess people are divided whether it was good or bad art. Um, in, in that sense, he was an innovator. We all know what came after Orwell. Who came before? Who was he most inspired by in terms of his style, of what he did? There doesn't seem to be an Orwell before Orwell, was there? Well, there. I would argue that there is, and I would argue that um, he's, uh, his literary tastes are immensely old-fashioned. Uh, he's a big Dickensian. Uh, quite apart from that, one of the key influences on him, to me, is Thackeray, um, who's satirical uh, novels within it, and particularly Thackeray's journalism. He wrote a very influential essay on Thackeray called Oysters and Brown Stout, where he singles out Thackeray's journalism, written before Vanity Farm, as the great sort of formative influence on his work. But if you certainly if you read the fiction, and uh, I'm thinking of particularly novels like coming up for air, you know, written just before the Second World War broke out, mm. and a really elegiac attempt of a man born in the late 19th century in rural Oxfordshire to go back home and make something of his and seek out the venues of his previous life. Now, the big, in, the decisive influence on that book and on a lot of other early Orwell is H.G. Wells. Um, mm. And, you know, that, that, is, that book is, in fact, borrows an incident from the history of Mr. Polly. The other key influence on Orwell that came, that sort of became apparent to me more and more as I worked on him is the, uh, the, is the Victorian, the late Victorian novelist George Gissing. Uh, who wrote about poverty and who wrote about struggling literary men and um, uh, the influence of Gissing on, for example, something like Keep the Aspenist from Flying, um, the, it, which is a novel about women and money and the emotional consequences of not having enough money. Um, again, this, 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 its concerns can be tracked back through through some of Dickens' novel, uh, through some of Gissing's novels and their kind of end of tether quality. And from also from Gissing, he got. Um, I think he, and, and from other writers, uh, there, there's a very, one thing, one of the absolutely crucial pieces of evidence to me in the development of Orwell's political thought uh, is he wrote a roundup, almost, at the, almost at, the time of the, at the time of the London Blitz, he wrote a roundup of some bygones, some dystopian novels of the kind that, you know, 1984 would eventually become. And these are books by Huxley. Uh, there's Wells's The Sleeper Awakes. There's a, some quite obscure books. There's a book by a very obscure writer called Ernest Bramer called The Secrets of the League. And the point that Orwell makes about um, the prospects for left-wing revolution, um, in certainly in Britain, is a point that, that Gissing made, which is that the great stumbling block to any kind of social change from below is the lower middle classes because they think they've got so much to lose. They've got their status, which is preeminent to them so they're going to despise the people slightly below it and than the social scale and all it seems to me got that from writers like Gissing and this is a very very powerful message that shines through all his political writings and the novels and almost until his death so those to me are the kind of writers he was influenced but they're not apart he had a fixation on Joyce and he was obsessed by Ulysses and introduced a whole sort of passage a whole chapter of Joycean pastiche into a clergyman's daughter. But but you couldn't say he was ever particularly influenced by modernism or liked sort of up-to-date, newfangled modernist writers. No, he, mostly he looked back. And one of the fascinating things to me, again, is that just before he was dying, this is after he's he'd written Animal Farm in 1984, um, futurist novels, enormous, enormously successful. The, the book he was working on when he died was called provisionally called A Smoking Room Story. And it was set on the boat back from Burma in 1927, the journey that he'd himself taken. And it's immensely old fashioned. And it reads like nothing so much as a piece of writing by somebody like Somerset Maugham, you know, written 20 years before. So he wasn't he wasn't reaching forward towards the end of his life as a writer. I think he was actually doubling back in lots of ways.
It'd be interesting to have seen what would have happened to his work had he had he lived longer. You mentioned the dystopian tradition. Huxley, I've always thought that Orwell's dystopian work reads better now. It hasn't aged as much as Huxley, but the dystopian tradition in, in English literature goes all the way back to Thomas More. Is there something about, you know, and, and you've talked about Orwell at epitomizing a certain kind of Englishness. Mm. Are the English particularly good at dystopian stuff in decline in the Second World War as everything was falling to pieces on every front? Um, does it lend itself to high-quality dystopian thought? The Americans well, have never... Well, certainly in the 1940s, they didn't write dystopian The Americans didn't now. do that kind of... But you see, there's this huge difference. I mean, I, I, uh, you're, you're getting me off on a tangent here, but it's a tangent I love to explore because I'm such a fan of earlier 20th century American novels. I mean, very unusually for an English reader, uh, I'm fascinated by American writers like uh, the big turn of the century and, and early 20th century naturalist writers, and in which, by which I mean not, not to do with the countryside, but, but naturalism in its purest sense. I'm, I'm talking writers like uh, Theodore Dreiser and James T. Farrell uh, and Upton Sinclair and a little later Steinbeck. And um, they're writing about a country that was almost sort of being created around them. You know, there's mm. there's a Dreiser novel, I think, where they can't actually work out how big one of the cities is because a new district is springing up every week. So there's no way in which they can estimate the population or the particular concerns the municipality uh, needs to follow. Um, and we obviously, um, you know, the or Orwell's tradition is a much staider one, a much older world, a world that is much less certain of itself, a, a world that is is much less secure. Um, or, or having said that, though, Orwell knew of some of these writers, and there's a very interesting connection between um, uh, Upton Sinclair's, uh, the, um, the, um, his great novel, The Chicago Stockyards, The Jungle, published in 1906, you know, about the, the Lithuanian refugee, the Lithuanian, the emigre workers working in the stockyards. And uh, the Jurgis, the hero of that novel, is this enormous sort of man, you know, man who gets by on his sheer physical strength. And his motto, the, you know, the, the talismanic sentence he brings to all his dealings with this new world that he's venturing into is, I will work harder. And those are the words put in the mouth of Boxer, the uh, you know Boxer, the the, uh, the horse, the stallion in um, in Animal Farm. So all it was clearly influenced by this kind of this kind of work. But you're right, the tradition is a, is a completely different one. We're a you know the English the English novel is an older, tireder, more reflexive, more reflective thing. And I think at that point the you know the, the, the connection the, the, the connection between those two two strands kind of kind of break apart in some ways. But there, there are some very interesting connections there. We are talking with DJ Taylor, the author of his second book about Orwell, Orwell, The New Life, uh, which uh, many reviewers have suggested is the new standard biography of Orwell. And take a break, uh, mention of our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Uh, I don't think that the editors of, of, of Liberties would be insulted if I called it um, not Orwellian, but certainly sympathetic to Orwell's defense of liberty. Maybe, uh, 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 David, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, um, with, with, uh, with liberties. Uh, it's a Washington DC quarterly, but I, I'm sure they would love, uh, to have some work from you in it. And in fact, as all guests on Keen On, you're going to get an annual subscription. I'm going to run a short add for that and then afterwards david i want to come back and talk specifically about orwell and the woman question so of don't course. leave us this is uh interesting stuff we'll be back in a second thank you 
Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. Go to libertiesjournal.com to learn more. Uh, David mm. uh, Taylor, DJ Taylor, the women have caught up with Orwell, have they? Uh, these two new books are coming out. We've got both Sandra Newman and Anna Funder on the show. I'm looking forward to both conversations very much. What do you make of, of that? I know you address the question of Orwell and women in, in your book, too. The women were always going to catch up with Orwell, and it's a good thing that they did, I think, uh, because uh, he has the the difficulty, I suppose, is that most of the people who, uh, you know, had who knew him, who left reminiscences of him were almost necessarily given the climate in which he operated the literary world of the 30s and 40s. Most of the memorialists were men, and most of those memorialists tended to see it, you know, from the man's point of view. And um it's been very interesting to kind of ferret out, certainly for me, to, to ferret out reminiscence of, of women who knew him and what they thought about him and how they reacted. I mean, they, they, his, his relationship with his, um, it, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I get the feeling certainly from you know, women found him attractive. Um, they certainly did that. They, um, they enjoyed his company. They, um, they kept up with him. One of the things, the remarkable things I found about these two new collections of letters. Uh, which to his Suffolk girlfriends, Eleanor Jakes, whom he wanted to marry in the early 1930s, and a woman called Brenda Salkeld, who he also wanted to marry in the 1930s, and they both turned him down. But the interesting thing is how long these relationships uh, were pursued. And in fact, Brenda, although she wouldn't marry him, visited him on, in hospital just before he died. Uh, he kept in touch with Eleanor all the time. In fact, he wrote, when he kept the, almost the first thing he did when he came back from Spain was to write this fascinating four-page type, long type letter to Eleanor, which describes the Spanish situation and what he'd seen there, in some ways more interestingly than some of Homage to Catalonia does, uh, you know, and, and sort of Eleanor, I, I remember I, I, I remember interviewing Eleanor's daughter, Susanna Collings, who vividly remembered, you know, her mother bursting into tears in January 1950 when the news came through on the on the radio that uh, that Orwell had died. Having said that, you know, he was, um, as his, you know, as his eloquent testimony to the fact that he was a pouncer and a pursuer of women and he can, but it's very, it's very difficult sometimes to get to the bottom of these relationships, you know, where, where insufficient evidence survives. I mean, for example, I, we know for a fact there are, there are quite a lot of letters where he was pursuing a friend of Eileen, his first wife's, called Lydia Jackson. And um, there are all these kind of mock confidential letters about, oh, you know, I called to see you, but you weren't there. This is really naughty of you. Where were you? Why can't I call? And very little of, of Lydia's responses to this survive. So you never really, you never really quite know on what terms the relationship proceeded. And um, they, I get the sense, certainly with some of his letters to Lydia Jackson, and also in some of his letters to Eleanor Jakes after she was safely engaged to his best friend, uh, Dennis Collins in Southwell, that in some ways almost, almost almost deluding himself as to the extent of his association with these women. You know, he's sort of setting, trying to set up dates that you doubt ever actually happened. And he's kind of presuming an affection that you may or may not have existed. And I, I it's the same in some ways with his... Uh, with his bio, with his uh, you know his relationship with Eileen, um, I haven't read um, 
Anna Funder's book. Oh, I, you I, haven't I, read it yet? I kind of, I'll be perfectly honest with you, actually. I, I, I'm reviewing. I I've hope got, you're always perfectly honest with me, DJ. <laughs> I hope so, too. I've got a copy of Sandra Newman's book, which I'm actually reviewing for the Times Literary Supplement. Here, and I heard her read from it at, uh, at the Narrowsburg Literary Festival in upstate New York a couple of months ago. I should be very, very interested to read that and see what she comes up with. Yeah, I started um, it and it just, it, it's like, it's brilliant, the first few pages. I don't know, I, mm. I'm going to finish it by the time we we interview her next month. Mm. And I have the greatest respect for Anna Funder's writing, but I, I've resisted countless, well, not countless, but many invitations to write about her book on the grounds that whatever, it, you know, I just don't think that these are, if they are battles, I don't think they are battles in the current climate that a man can win. So I'm I'm not actually going to sort of, you know, well, that, that's that's an invitation. We'll have to get you both on the show. Well, it's, no, because you see, most, I mean, from what I, there was a, a very good, an exhausting... Man can't win? You mean you're going to lose whatever? No, I'm going to lose whatever. Right. I'm going to lose whatever because there are people out there who will not be interested in what I have to say because I am a man. It's as simple as that. I'm a sad old white man. It's, I've, I've had it, you know, so I don't, I don't You're actually... Living in 1984, animal, animal king, uh, what's it called? Uh, animal farm. Yeah. We've, we've, we've realized, well, I, I wonder what Orwell's attitude, David, to, to... I mean, clearly he wasn't a very seductive fellow. He wasn't very good. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. He um, wasn't. I mean, he get, kept he, getting he down. It's like, rather like the fifth Beatle. I mean... Now these women would have jumped at getting the chance to marry George Orwell, but um, I think what was his attitude to smart uh, to, to, to smart women. I mean, we've done shows, for example, on the the Oxford philosophers Elizabeth Anscombe, who was very close mm. to Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein also had an incredibly patronising attitude to women. Mm. Mm. Iris Murdoch, of course, who was rebellious in every sense. Um, a number of other uh, very influential uh, uh, philosophers at Oxford did. Did he give credit? I mean, I guess he never really read Arendt. Were there women he admired intellectually? There were. There were women that he got on with intellectually and whose writings he very much admired. And one of them is uh, his friend Innes Holden, uh, on whom he again pounced at some point in 1941. And she Pounce is an Orwellian word. I can just imagine. It is. He's so awkward and, and, and with his little mustache and everything. Inez was capable of giving as good as she got. And uh, there's a he commissioned when he was working on what I mean by that is when he was working on the BBC at the BBC between 1941 and 43, he commissioned uh, he commissioned a kind of composite short story where five writers of whom he was one wrote a section and the book was carried on. I think E.M. Forster was selected to finish it off. And uh, when Innes got round to writing book three, the, the characterization of one of the characters in it that she put is clearly a skit on Orwell himself. There were several Orwellian references, things about you know, his prep school and the time in Paris. She could only have got from Orwell. And I, and I don't, my suspicion, my hunch is that he wasn't terribly pleased by this, but it's an example of Innes being quite up to his fighting weight, but he admired her books and reviewed them, you know, reviewed them well. And, um, uh, and, and he, he is obviously, she is one of her in his interest. So another one is Steve, the poet Stevie Smith was a great friend of, of Orwell's and in fact told what I, I'm pretty sure are some fibs about her relationship with him. Uh, you know, in later life, she would remark to biographers that, you know, oh, I was living with George Orwell at the time and it wasn't easy. There was no evidence at all that she ever had any relationship with Orwell. So she, she's kind of sort of get, trying to get herself into the loop. This is what I mean about it being so difficult, sifting what the actual evidence that is out there to produce any finite 
conclusions. There's a, I should say, by the way, there's a very good, very comprehensive biography of uh, Eileen that was written three years ago by, uh, by Sylvia Topp, um, uh, which was a, a, a profoundly interesting work and full of, full, of, full of good material that she managed to quarry out. Uh, and this is now, you know, that you can interpret it in all kinds of different ways. Right. The uh, I've started Wifedom. As I said, uh, Anna Fanda's coming on the show later this mm. week. She's an Australian-based writer. Mm. I, I think in this book, she suggests there was an element of cruelty uh, of Orwell towards his wife. I, is that fair, do you think, in, in your research, in your biographical work? Was, if, are there if, moments of say, cruelty say, towards, his, not... wives and, uh, towards no. his wife and other women? I've not read it. Uh, all I can say is that she worshipped him. Uh, now, this may have been a, you know, a, a peculiar psychological response to his cruelty. But uh, the particular vignette that I, I always associate with their relationship was and it, it's also pertinent to, to Orwell's whole attitude to women, which was a time when the block of flats they were living in was bombed during the Blitz and a bomb fell. And Eileen witnessed uh, Orwell rushing forward to comfort a woman um, who was you know, in a state of profound sort of terror and shock on the staircase. And, all, and Eileen remembered Orwell bending over this woman with a look of great concern. And the look on, and she, he looked, and this is according to Orwell, he looked like Christ, was how she put it. Saint Orwell. Saint Orwell. Now, um, I'm sure that he was, you know, he was a terror to, he, he, I mean, the, one of the, the problems with Orwell is he, he walked around the world in a state of almost complete detachment. I mean, Eileen told another story once about how she went out for the evening. I think this is about in 1943, uh, <laughs> leaving, uh, leaving a shepherd's pie for Orwell in the oven and a dish of jellied eels on the floor for the cat and came back three hours later to find that Orwell had eaten the jellied eels and the, the cat was wondering where its supper was and the shepherd's pie was burnt to a crisp in the oven. That was the kind of you know, relationship he had with the world around him a lot of the time. It seems to be a, a Monty Python-esque quality in some ways to Orwell as this stiff upper-class Englishman. Uh, that's part of him, isn't it? Is that fair? Is that, there was something that, slightly that absurd is, uh, about him. No, that, there is an absurdity about it. Uh, there's, also, there's also a kind of stage management about it in that some of the time he seems perfectly conscious of what he was doing uh, and was doing it for peculiar reasons of his own. Uh, I mean, Anthony Pohl used to tell a story of when when smart and in inverted commas parties started up again after the Second World War. And Orwell was would turn up at one of these dues in which people were wearing e evening dress, you know, bow ties and black and dinner jackets. And Orwell would turn up in a shabby old suit, which had obviously been made by a very good tailor. So the shabbier it got, the classier it, it looked, if you see what I mean. And Orwell would stop in the doorway of this party and sort of look round with an effective, effective affected air of bewilderment and say, oh, oh, I see. Oh, is it all right if I come in dressed like this? And as Paul would say, what were you supposed to say if you said, no, George, you can't come in dressed like this. You saw the invitation. It says, you know, smart gear. Or would obviously have thought he was being persecuted. But to come in not dressed like everybody else was making a kind of point about his own status and his position in the, the world. So I think it's Orwell being very, very kind of, in some ways, devious, you know, and kind of sort of manipulating the people, the, the people he was with in some way. Is there something interesting in a political sense about that? Your, your book uh, was reviewed in The Guardian, the left wing or the progressive uh, English mm. newspaper, uh, suggesting... Uh, that you present a very English socialist. Um, and they say some of 
the most rewarding passages are about the practical Orwell, homesteading and handyman, keeping hens and goats. Is this the fate of the left that Orwell perhaps um, prophesized of shabby men looking after hens and goats and having no political relevance at all? It's very interesting you should, uh, you should seize on that particular aspect of the review because one of the things, again, that struck me through this long relationship I've been conducting with Orwell was that the, the practical man thing, which he was very keen on, you know, he was a smallholder and he was a knocker up of shelves and he was a mender and he was a tapper of tax and all this kind of thing. So he was um, an Ikea man before Ikea. He was Ikea man before there was Ikea. But the problem is, is that when you get down to the, to the nub of it and, and revisit the <laughs> reminiscence of his friends, he wasn't very good at any of this. And so people, people would visit the cottage, the remote rural cottage in Hertfordshire that he, that he inhabited with Eileen in the late 1930s. And his friend Rainer Heppelson said, you know, it was just a couple of goats and a few hens and a sort of a few knocked up, um, <clears throat> a few knocked up fences and, and, and not any looking. But it was the same when, uh, you know, a, a friend of his whose father was a timber merchant during the war got the father to give Orwell several lengths of beautiful cherry wood to, to make a bookcase out of it. And it was terrible. It sagged in the middle. He had no idea. At least he wasn't as bad as Thoreau, who no, got his no, mother to do his laundry was... when he went down to the lake. But it suited it suited Orwell to, you know, he, he used to sort of, you know, he, there's, there's, I, I came across a fascinating reminiscence by a friend of his, an old Etonian friend of his. They've, you know, they've been to the same public school who went to visit him. He went to visit him in the cottage and Orwell kind of boasted about what a practical man he was and all this kind of thing. And the friend, uh, the friend who actually worked, uh, you know, as a roustabout in Texas, you know, the real practical, uh, real practical thing. You know, I don't believe it. This is all just rubbish. Keeping a few chickens doesn't make you a practical man. I've really seen the world. And they, I think they had a bit of a row about it because all yeah, I could just see him living in Hackney, having his hens and goats. But yeah, in yeah. all seriousness, um, David, does it speak of, I, I want to get to quote unquote, the conservative side of Orwell mm. uh, in a second, but does it speak of the intellectual bankruptcy perhaps of, of the left in, in England and perhaps in, around the world that we need to focus on is hens and goats? Um, I, I, I've just been reading, um, there was, a, there was a, an article by a political writer I admire here in England called Philip Collins in the Times newspaper. Yeah, I saw you tweeted that. I tweeted that. I was very struck by that. He's a very astute man and he makes the point that um, the left have been, certainly the British left, have been conspic conspicuous in the, the absence of their practical suggestions about how they propose to change anything, how they propose to redistribute income, how they want to deal with social inequality, particularly as there's no money left in the British Exchequer at the moment. That's the great problem that any incoming government is going to have, that there's there's no money. And um, I think it, it probably is. But, but then you see Orwell's the, the, the kind of tergiversations, the different courses of Orwell's political thought go off into all kinds of odd ways. I mean, towards the end of his life, it's always, although he took an interest in the, the Labour government that was in power towards the end of his life, it, I'm very struck in the last few years of his life how he was more interested in causes and individuals and fights for freedom and anti-censorship campaigns than he actually was in practical politics. He was never very interested in practical politics. He was offered the chance uh, to stand for parliament in, in 1945 by a Labour constituency, and he turned it down. That wasn't the kind of power that interested in him. Uh, that interested him, and ultimately, it's it's you know what I think about Orwell, and you know that 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 message that hangs tantalisingly over his 
over the page when he writes. I mean, he wrote you know, the famous essay about Charles Dickens that he wrote around the time of the start of the Second World War. And the point, what he says in that is if you boil you know, Dickens's politics, such as they are, down to, um, you know, boil them down in the crucible, what you are left with is the two words, behave decently. Uh, you know, that's his message to people, which is either, as Orwell says, and, you know, an, an absolute sort of flaming cliche, or one of the most important things you can say to anybody about anything. And ultimately, that's what Orwell boils down to. You know, we must... Well, it's also that there's a third option of a kind of a, a cop-out. Um, mm. So is his fate, ultimately, it doesn't seem to be any coincidence that one of his great fans, if there is a Saint Orwell, the, the first disciple or the second or third mm. disciple is Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens. His, Hitchens. Why Orwell Matters was a big mm. success. He's a man, of course, who went from the left to the right young mm -hmm. man on the left, died a, an old conservative. And there seems to be, it's conservatives who love Orwell. I mean, this, the, saint, the, the saintly quality of Orwell now seems to be realized on the left. He, that your book got very nice review in, in the, in the, the Daily Telegraph. Telegraph. Oh, no, uh, they didn't talk always... about the, the hens and the, the goats there. Then it got a very good Journal. one in the Wall Street Journal. I noticed this especially, actually. I noticed this especially in America. And I'm obviously very grateful for any attention that any book I write gets anywhere, you know, given the, the struggles that... Uh, what Thackeray used to call the corporation of the goose quill have in the modern age. But I do notice uh, that it does tend, Orwell does tend, to, uh, and my book as well, does tend to get picked up by what I would call the neocon. The neocon American right just love him at the moment because I suppose... Well, is that, maybe that's his fate. I mean, you said, maybe even your fate. You said you don't want to talk about Orwell and women because you're bound to lose. Um, I'm bound to lose, yeah. You know. That sounds a rather conservative... Comment. I'm not sure all men would agree on that. I, I they probably wouldn't. It's just you know. I suppose it's. I just. Uh, I could do without the aggro. Quite basic. Quite really. You know. In the the age in which we live, I can do without the Twitter fights. I can do without the. Um, I can do without the abuse. I just. I, I. I lapse into a state of quietism in in you know in in arguments like this. But going back to your original point, I mean, Orwell knew what he'd done. Uh, you know, after he'd written 1984, he knew that he'd written something that could be used as a weapon for the, 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 the right to attack the left. Uh, there are several, you know, there are letters to American supporters about this written in the autumn of 1949, just before he died. And he knew that he knew the fate of 1984, that it would be weaponized by the CIA. And in fact, as we know, you know, the, the original Hollywood movie was bankrolled virtually by the CIA in 1956. Copies of Animal Farm, I think, were dropped out of planes on, uh, you know, Eastern European countries in the 1950s. He knew this was happening, but it was a price he was prepared to pay because he thought that, you know, liberty needed all the friends that it could get, even if they were, uh, you know, American Republicans in the 1950s. Well, let's end with um, uh, uh, David uh, on uh, the new life of Orwell. Is he relevant today? Um, conservatives claim him because of woke culture. Uh, the left, I'm sure, or certainly liberals, classic liberals, uh, embrace him for his defense of individual liberty. Is he as relevant today in 2023, in the August of 2023, a hot summer? I'm not sure if Orwell had strong feelings on the environment than he's ever been. Well, actually, one of the... Um, Peter Davison, who compiled the, 20, the definitive 20-volume, 21-volume 21 edition of Orwell's works, one, once went through 1984 and compiled a list of Orwell's prophecies that he thought Orwell had got true. And in fact, one of them was deforestation. 
you know, he, there, there is an environmental element to 1984, which I think would, uh, but it's, 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 you know, it, it, it's not a question to me, certainly, as someone who's been reading Orwell, I suppose, for nearly 50 years now. It's not a question of what Orwell got right or how Orwell predicts the modern world and so forth. It's just that, it's just that voice that shines through his books. You know, when I first, I, when I, I came across much later, you know, much many years after having first read A Clergyman's Daughter, but he, when, he, when he first read the work of the American novelist Henry Miller, by which he was very taken, when he read Tropic of Cancer in 1936, he said, you know, it was as if Miller had written this for me. He wrote this for me. He knows all about me. He knows I am here. And that's what I thought when I first read the first of his books. I thought there's one copy of the, this book in the world. It was written for me. I'm reading it. How fantastic. I found someone who speaks to me like nobody else does, who will always be there, who will always, you know, be my friend, even though he's been dead all those years. That, that's what he means to me here in 2023. And ultimately is, and it's not a very fashionable idea, and particularly perhaps in the context of, of what Liberties is trying to do, a defense of classical liberalism, is mm. he essentially just... Someone who, who, who made the argument that John Stuart Mill and Isaiah Berlin and all, all other classical liberals made, but he made it in a, in a very clever way in 1984 and Animal Farm and his other writing. I think he made it in a way that uh, appeals to people beyond the traditional literary audience. He once said that most novels are written about literary chaps, by literary chaps, for literary chaps. Uh, and one of the great things about 1984 is by setting it in which what was pretty obvious to, to its original readers, he set it in the bomb-cratered London of the post-war era. You know, in some ways, 1984 is 1948 reversed. And the original readers um, could actually see almost outside the windows the world he was writing about. And it gave that it gave it that vision of coherence and immediacy that, you know, a dystopia set in, say, the 26th century wouldn't have had. So I think uh, despite his detachment and despite his, you know, despite his class origins, and all these other things, he was able to, to use EM forces. But he was able to connect with ordinary people in a way that a lot of writers of his generation weren't.